0: I will proclaim to the world the deeds of Gilgamesh. This was the man to whom all things were known. This was the king who knew the countries of the world. He was wise. He saw mysteries and knew secret things. He brought us a tale of the days before the flood. He went on a long journey, was weary, worn out with labor. Returning, he rested. He engraved on a stone the whole story. The opening lines of the Penguin classic rendition of the Epic of Gilgamesh, an old Babylonian version of a story from ancient Sumer. Around 6,000 years ago, a true civilization began to emerge along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Before we can move on with the story of our Western traditions, however, just that single sentence needs to be dissected and analyzed a little bit. It is surprisingly dense and full of meaning. What was the world like 6,000 years ago, the world of men and women? Most of our ancestors were still living in the Neolithic, practicing a combination of hunting and gathering and subsistence agriculture. They were still living in clans made up of several families. A man did not really know anyone to whom he was not related, with whom he did not spend much of his time anyway, hunting, foraging, or farming. There were trades, but specialization was limited. Most men and women had to have a generous complement of skills in order to care for themselves through life. Hunting and farming meant also knowing how to make and repair your own weapons and tools. You had to acquire and retain a wealth of general knowledge about animals, plants, climate, seasons, tool-making, but few people in such cultures were able to specialize and focus only on one particular trade. However, in certain areas around the world, such as the Levant and in Mesopotamia, proto-cities had formed over the last few thousand years, They were small in comparison to the full-fledged cities that would eventually arise along the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, holding only perhaps 5,000 people at a time. As far as we know, these proto-cities lacked the full complement of attributes with which we describe actual cities. Centralized government, the kind of societal planning and organization which would result in streets and other large public projects, social stratification and other things, Only in the cities of Mesopotamia, sometime around 3500 BC, do we see all of these characteristics and more become present. They are the full flowering of millennia of urban experimentation. And about that word civilization that I used earlier, we call civilization civilization because it refers to city life. We get the word civilization from the Latin word civitas, which simply means city. When we speak of civilization, we are literally speaking of city life. So this was the first civilization in the sense that these were the first true city dwellers that we know of. However, that does not mean that people who lived before this time or outside of this region were grunting primitives living hand to mouth in the wilderness. The discoveries of proto-cities like Jericho or the site of Gobekli Tepe and other archaeological discoveries have taught us that men and women were capable of orderly cooperative and productive lifestyles long before the rise of cities so as the darkness of prehistory brightens ever so slightly at this juncture on our timeline we see complete cities appearing in mesopotamia they are overseen by strong governments they plan roads and streets they build large monuments such as the ziggurats which will be described later There are men working exclusively in specialized trades. More notably, there are many people living completely urban lives that do not involve any direct engagement in agriculture or hunting. They live from their trades. Some of these people are priests, managing the worship sites of the city. Others are scribes working in the government, mostly to make and keep tax records. There are also soldiers working for the city ruler, to whom we shall refer as a king. The greatest of these kings may have been a man known as Gilgamesh, whose legendary exploits were recorded in one of the few pieces of literature to come down to us from this era. Before we discuss the Epic of Gilgamesh and other knowledge of this ancient civilization, we must first identify the people who built it. Previously in this series, at the end of Unit 1, I described the Proto-Indo-Europeans, a race of people that shared a common language and culture, and which spread out and diversified as it conquered and or settled large portions of the Eurasian continent. Now it is time to speak of the Sumerians, the people who founded the world's first true civilization. the people of Sumer. We can say a little more about these ancient peoples than we could say about the Proto-Indo-Europeans. A quick note on pronunciation before I proceed, though. Growing up and reading about Sumer, I read somewhere that the correct pronunciation was Shumer, with an sh at the beginning. However, in my recent preparation for this episode, I cannot find any such pronunciation. Instead, people seem to pronounce it as it reads, Sumer, with a simple s, You may have heard me alternate these pronunciations in earlier podcasts when I made future reference to this ancient realm. For this episode, I plan on sticking with one pronunciation, Sumer. If anyone has any ideas on the proper pronunciation, please leave a comment on the website or on the host website at Podbean, where I produce all these episodes. Anyway, back to Sumer. The people of Sumer apparently call themselves the black-headed people. This self-description has come down to us anyway from their own texts, what does it mean? Typically, historians have taken it to mean simply that the Sumerians, the native stock anyway, were black-haired. What makes that remark so interesting is that it suggests a distinction between themselves and those around them, perhaps the original inhabitants of the land, since we will also discuss in a moment that the Sumerians considered themselves to have arrived in this region and not to have sprung up from the local people. If their black hair was a distinguishing mark, what did others look like? Were they surrounded by brown-headed brunettes, by blondes? These possibilities seem unlikely, especially as black has been a natural widespread hair coloring among humans since presumably the Paleolithic. Others suggest that this was just the hair color of the elites in Sumerian society. We can't completely answer this mystery. As with many of the clues we have about people of the Neolithic and earlier, sometimes we just have one token or artifact from this long-lost period, and no context to aid us in understanding it. So it is with the phrase, black-headed people. We can speculate on what this meant to the Sumerians, but unless some new trove of ancient clay tablets is unearthed elsewhere, we are unlikely to ever understand what it meant. Where did they come from? It is not necessary for the Sumerians to be immigrants or invaders, but they also describe themselves this way. Interestingly, their own theories about their origins are in conflict with common sense, archeological views of their possible native land. The Sumerians describe themselves as having come out of the north. This would be the region of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, a region already discussed in the podcast. Yet there is no solid evidence that the Sumerians were Indo-Europeans from that region. One might think that, given the present and known historical prevalence of Semitic peoples in this region, that the Sumerians were the first Semites. However, this is also not the case. The Sumerians seem distinct from the local Semite populations of the time. Furthermore, the Sumerians were more present in the southern region of Mesopotamia than they were in the north, where, in fact, the populations were mostly Semitic. In fact, the oldest city of the Sumerians was Eridu, which was closer to the Persian Gulf in the south than it was to the northern northern regions. There are some theories posited today that the Persian Gulf, during the Ice Age, when sea levels were much lower, might have been a paradise and home to many archaic humans. And the flooding of that region, with the melting of the glaciers and the global rise in sea levels, may have pushed people northward, among them the Sumerians. It is outside the scope of this podcast, but there have even been theories put forward that the lost paradise in the Persian Gulf may have been the Garden of Eden, spoken of in the opening chapters of the Book of Genesis. But again, this is nothing but interesting speculation. No one can say for certain where the Sumerians came from and there is varied opinion with regard to the actual genetic makeup of the Sumerian population. It is easy to assume a homogeneity of people, but this does not fit in with the knowledge that we have about the genetic heterogeneity of the archaic world, in which large regions such as Mesopotamia seem to have held multiple groups of genetically diverse and distinct people. We will have to leave this topic behind because there is nothing that can be said definitively about it. The origin of the Sumerians, indeed their very racial identity, is something that we may never completely understand. What should be understood, though, about Sumerian civilization, is that it was not, at least in its earliest days, any kind of unified realm. There was no king of all Sumer. This civilization was a collection of cities that sprang up on the shores of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, but they were not united politically. They were not even really united culturally in that each city had particular gods to whom it was devoted. Though, as with the Greeks in later times, there was recognition of a complete pantheon of gods, even if only a handful of them were the particular subjects of worship in a given city. In the next segment, let's take a look at these ancient cities in general, and focus on a few specific cities, and try to understand how they functioned, where they were, when they first appeared, who populated them, and what they did in their day-to-day lives. The names of the cities may sound strange or oddly familiar, depending on whether or not you have read the Bible at all. In the book of Genesis, chapter 10, the text speaks of a mighty king, Nimrod, and his chief cities, Babylon, Erek, and Akkad. While Babylon is a later city in the Mesopotamian period, the second-mentioned city, Erek, is certainly just a different rendering of Uruk, one of the most important cities of the Sumerian civilization. Akkad, the third mentioned city in that list, would be more important toward the end of the third millennium BC, when Sumer gave way to the Akkadians, whom we will discuss at the end of this episode. In Genesis chapter 11 as well, the text speaks of Ur of the Chaldeans, and Ur is another major city in the history of Sumer. But there are others not mentioned in the Bible that were also significant while Sumer endured. These include cities such as Eridu, Lagash, Nippur, Shurupak, and many others. Each city was home at different times to tens of thousands of people. Cities such as Babylon would grow to much greater size eventually, but this would be long after Sumer had waned and Babylon itself became the center of its own mighty civilization. Though much greater metropolises came after these Sumerian cities eroded into the sands of the desert, it should not be forgotten that for a thousand years, between the end of the fourth millennium BC and the end of the third, These were the greatest cities in the region, possibly the world. Where were they located? I have stated that they were in Mesopotamia, but their their specific locations were not incidental. Each of them was placed on the banks of one of the two primary rivers in this land, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Digging up the remains of these cities is not easy, because these rivers have shifted their courses many times over the last several thousand years. In truth, these rivers constantly change course over time, so it is not as simple to find an ancient Sumerian city by digging along the banks of these rivers today. These once great cities are now just mounds of brick and stone buried underground and often far away from where the two rivers now run. A modern listener may have trouble really imagining how these cities may have operated and what living in them was like. First, I I should distinguish them from our modern cities, which are delineated by political borders, drawn on maps, which determine things like taxation and availability of law enforcement, control of utilities, and so on. Each of these cities, which I mentioned with regard to Sumer, was really a city-state. A city-state, compared to a modern city, was a municipality whose dominion was not determined by any fixed lines on a map. Instead, these cities held sway over much of the surrounding countryside, and just how much changed from year to year due to military conquests and treaties between their rulers. We call them city-states because, unlike modern nations, which typically contain several cities of varying sizes in their realm, a city-state was usually, though not always, made up of one powerful city and the villages and farmlands that surrounded it. The city itself, the urban environment, was constituted of public buildings and homes, much like you might imagine today. There were governmental centers, religious sites, homes and apartment-type domiciles for the urban residents. There were barracks for soldiers, temples for priests, palaces for kings. These buildings and dwellings, the inhabitants of the city made mostly with mud bricks, and they were all, except for the ziggurats, one or two-story buildings. Though much smaller than our modern major major cities, the cities of ancient Mesopotamia were probably just as busy. You can easily imagine messengers, scribes, soldiers, priests, merchants, and others walking the streets, carrying burdens, selling goods, and buying food. Though small in numbers, these cities were also compact, so a person would have experienced the density of population that one can often sense in a modern city today. During the first unit, I briefly described what little we can ascertain about the basics of Stone Age religion, as determined by the rare artifacts that we find from this period. Most of what we think that we know about mythology and religion prior to the Bronze Age is really just speculation, due to the dearth of recovered materials, the essential lack of context, and an absolute lack of documentation. It is only with the discovery of Sumer that we began to learn what religion was like for men and women as they entered the Bronze Age. Unfortunately, we do not know anything about the transitional period leading out of the Stone Age and into this era of urbanization. With the ruins of Sumer, we find an already established mythology and priesthood. Historians like to speculate about how and why the priesthood developed, but no one really knows anything about it. Prior to the discovery of Gobekli Tepe, an event described in an earlier episode, it was assumed that formal religion and the priesthood developed in urban environments as a form of social control. Now that new discoveries seem to point to the existence of religious belief and ritual long before there were cities, the development of human spirituality has become more, not less, mysterious. Nonetheless, my purpose here is to describe what we do know about Sumerian mythology. The Sumerian religion is not something that completely surprises historians. The names of the gods and their functions can be linked clearly to many Babylonian gods of the period around or just after 2000 BC. So these beliefs and stories presumably endured for thousands of years, having their origin perhaps in the the Neolithic period, before cities arose in Mesopotamia, and lasting until the Roman era. Many of these Babylonian names of gods are found in the Old Testament of the Bible, in Jewish descriptions of the gods of the nations surrounding them, especially in literature composed during the exile in Babylon. At the beginning of the Sumerian period, it appears that the recognized gods were mostly related to nature, There was a god named An, or Anu in later versions, who was god of the sky. He was originally supreme among the gods and was always considered the ancestor of the gods who were more highly regarded in later days. In Sumerian religion, we see a similar sort of progression from one generation to the next of divine beings. The earliest stories in Greece, for example, tell of earth and sky as gods, and later stories tell of the titans, such as Kronos. And then finally, the gods that we know so well, such as Zeus. So An, or Anu, was the originally high god, the lord of the sky. And Anu mated with Ki, who was the earth goddess of the Sumerian religion. From their pairing came the rest of the gods. It is tempting to draw some relationship between the Sumerian sky god Anu and the original Greek sky god Uranus. And then Gia the Greek earth goddess, is not such a different name than Ki, the earth goddess of the Sumerians. Along with Anu and Ki, the Sumerians also worshipped Enlil, their son. Enlil was the storm god of the Sumerians, and he would retain a sort of primacy among the generations of Mesopotamians that would inherit the legacy of Sumer, and he would be worshipped for thousands of years in this region. He was also the primary or patron deity of the city of Nippur for many centuries. In some versions of Mesopotamian flood myths, Enlil is the god responsible for causing the deluge, the flood, to fall on humanity as retribution for all the noise that people made, which kept the god from sleeping properly. In later years, the Sumerian pantheon grew to include thousands of gods, both major and minor. Among them was Inanna, who would also be known in Babylonian times as Ishtar, and in the Bible she is known as Astarte. She was the Sumerian goddess of love and was both loved and feared for being unpredictable and vengeful. Much of what we know about Sumerian mythology actually comes down to us from Babylonian tales, carved into clay tablets over a thousand years after the founding of the Sumerian city-states. The most well-preserved of these texts are the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Enuma Lish is named after the first words in the the tale. Sometimes these words are translated into English as when on high or when in the heavens, essentially referring to the the rest of the opening lines to a time when the universe was new and nothing had name or form. The poem goes on to explain how the world came into being. The universe is born out of chaos, personified in the text as Tiamat, a name that might be familiar to players of Dungeons & Dragons. The tale goes on to describe the creation of many monsters and battles with them. In many places, the story is fragmentary, time not having preserved every line of text. But the Enuma Elish is definitely an action story which strikes quite a contrast with biblical stories from the same region and time period, and about the same matters. The opening chapters of Genesis present a world that is created in a step-by-step, orderly fashion. There is some action and terror for example, the encounter with the serpent in the garden, Cain murdering Abel, the flood, but that is nothing compared to the struggles described in the Enuma Elish. There are many slayings and spear thrusts and bellies bursting open. In this Babylonian text, the reader is also introduced to Marduk, another god that would gain prominence in the Sumerian pantheon over time. Like many other gods, he was the patron of a specific city, in this case Babylon, Just so, in earlier times, the gods of the original cities of Sumerian civilization, such as Ur, Uruk, Lagash, Kish, and Nippur, alternatively were placed at the head of the vast pantheon of gods. In much the same way, in in medieval Europe, towns would pay special homage to their patron saint, while simultaneously recognizing and respecting the existence of other gods in other cities, as well as the various gods of nature, of the household, of fertility, and of war. I cannot proceed with the history of Sumer without bringing up the tale that is most memorable to the modern reader, perhaps because it has received a little attention in school textbooks, I speak of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was a semi-legendary king who probably ruled the city of Uruk sometime after 3000 BC. His eponymous Epic states that he was only one-third man and two-thirds god. His mother, Ninsun, was the queen of the city, as queens in the ancient Near East were always the mother of the sitting king rather than one of his many wives. We see a remnant of this tradition carried down to our own day in Christianity in which the Virgin Mary is often referred to in traditional Christian sects as the Queen of Heaven since she is the mother of Jesus. Ninsun, Gilgamesh's mother, was later added to the pantheon of Mesopotamia as a new goddess. In this story about Gilgamesh, and there are others I should point out but none so well preserved and so descriptive as the Epic of Gilgamesh, In this story, the first tablet tells of how Gilgamesh was a mighty man, but perhaps feared rather than respected. Gilgamesh Gilgamesh oppressed his people with work and upset the men of his realm by having sex with and presumably raping all of their women, even the married ones. Even the gods are upset with, with Gilgamesh's tyrannical ways, so they decide to create a nemesis to challenge him. In the wilderness, outside Uruk, they create Enkidu, a wild man who lives for a time after his creation with the animals of the plains, drinking from rivers, grazing as they do, and even destroying the traps that hunters lay for his wild companions. After hunters complain of Enkidu's deeds, Gilgamesh sends a sacred prostitute out to find the wild man and seduce him. Sacred prostitutes worked in the temples of Uruk, doing what you would expect, but under religious coverage, probably as a way to raise money for the temples while providing sexual outlets for men. This sacred prostitute sleeps with Enkidu and, over a period of some weeks, civilizes him. Eventually, wild beasts become afraid of him, and he finds that he has no choice but to join civilization, so he goes to Uruk to challenge Gilgamesh. This depiction of Enkidu as a wild man is interesting on its own. Apparently, he is only thus depicted in the later Babylonian version of the story. In the earlier Sumerian texts, Enkidu is a servant in the household of Gilgamesh, who rises up to challenge the king. But the later Babylonians in their tale have converted him into some remnant of the Neolithic, perhaps a hunter-gatherer, a memory of the old way of life for humans, living out in the wild among the wild beasts. In the text, the sacred prostitute speaks glowingly of city life in comparison to Enkidu's existence in the wild. She details how people dress and what they eat. It reads like a very direct rejection of any return to the wandering, rootless way of life that characterized human existence for tens of thousands of years. As the story continues, Enkidu comes to the city of Uruk and challenges Gilgamesh. They engage in physical combat and exhaust one another until they decide to end the conflict by becoming friends. When Enkidu mourns his lost companionship with animals in the wilderness, Gilgamesh proposes that they help him forget about his troubles by going into the great cedar forest to battle with Humbaba. Now, a couple of explanations. The cedar forest to which the story refers is most likely in the region of present-day Lebanon and Syria. The Old Testament often speaks of the cedars of Lebanon. You probably do not think of the Middle East and forest together in the same thought. However, in the ancient past, before men had cut down all the forests of the Old World, it seems that the very limited forest land of the Levant and the Near East today was much more expansive. Such environments would also be places of fear for city dwellers of the time. The forest, like Enknu, represented the old ways, the forgotten life in the wild that Sumerian men and women had eschewed in favor of urban life. And who is this Humbaba that they went to battle with? He is not well described in the story, other than to say that he is terrifying to, the, to behold. Perhaps the contemporary listeners of this story already knew how Humbaba looked, did not require explanation, yet even this is hard to say because surviving artistic depictions of the creature vary. It is possible that Humbaba is simply another type of the giant, a being found in ancient stories from across the globe, from the Norse to the Greeks, to the Sumerians, and even among the natives of the Americas. Regardless, he is terrifying. The gods have placed him in the cedar forest to keep humans out but this does not keep the two heroes of the story from seeking to challenge him, if only to prove their own manhood. After a long battle, Gilgamesh and Enkidu behead Humbaba. Returning to Uruk from the forest, Gilgamesh is visited by the love goddess Inanna, or Ishtar. She openly desires to be his wife and to share in his glory. However, Gilgamesh rejects her offer and reminds Inanna of the ill fate of her past lovers, such as Tammuz. We should stop here to discuss Tammuz briefly. Also known as Dumuzi or other variants of that name to later civilization, Tammuz was a god who suffered the wiles of Inanna or Ishtar and after a long story ended up dying and passing half the year in the underworld before being resurrected and living in the other half of the year above ground. He is seen as the earliest known example of this connection between nature and the life and death of a deity. Tammuz's death was mourned by his followers, and his resurrection in the spring was celebrated anew every year. This pattern of religious belief, according to one theory, is repeated throughout human history in many religions that originate in or near this region of the world, such as with Dionysius, the god of wine for the Greeks, Osiris among the Egyptians, and even the Jesus of Christianity. But back to Gilgamesh. Inanna is enraged at the hero's rejection of her advances. She complains to her father Anu, the supreme god, and he sends the bull of heaven to battle with Gilgamesh and Enkidu. This creature is another mystery of the tale. From the name and the description, we know that he is a bull, but his full significance in the spiritual world of the Sumerians is unclear. However, it is worth noting that this is just another example of the religious importance applied to cattle in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age world our Neolithic ancestors had somehow domesticated the auroch, the gigantic and fearsome wild ancestor of modern cattle. And apparently they saw religious or spiritual significance in the animal. Certainly cattle, powerful and large as they were and providing a steady supply of beef, leather, milk, were symbolic of life and strength. In the millennia that followed the domestication of the auroch, we can see how this spiritual value continued in different ways with the Hindus of India considering cattle sacred, or the terrible minotaur, half-man, half-bull of Greek legend, and the golden calf of the book of Exodus in the Bible, to which the Israelites turn with adoration after their escape from Egypt. Again, Gilgamesh and Enkidu go to battle and defeat the Bull of Heaven. However, this is too much for the gods. Enkidu suffers terrible dreams in the next chapter of the tale, ending with one that reveals to him the underworld of the dead and declares that he must die as a result of his exploits with Gilgamesh. This underworld that he sees is a dreadful place, as it apparently was for all near-eastern religions, where the souls of the dead go about in the darkness, not being punished as in the Christian hell, but neither do they lead any sort of meaningful existence. The dead there are just static reflections of themselves, really. Enkidu dies after this dream, and Gilgamesh is torn with grief. He also comes to the realization that he himself is mortal, that he too will go to his death, as did his friend Enkidu. So he goes on a long journey to find the secret to immortality. He has many adventures on the way, fighting lions and a mysterious scorpion man. Eventually, he encounters Utnapishtim, the survivor of the Great Flood, who lives as an immortal in a garden and Utnapishtim tells the story of this flood. In the story that Utnapishtim tells, the gods are shown to have once become angry with all of humanity and decided to send a flood to destroy the people of the earth. One of the gods, Enki, reveals this plan of the gods to Utnapishtim and tells him to build a giant ship in which he will place his family, some others from his village, and an assortment of animals to survive the deluge. The boat rides the waters until it rests on a mountaintop, from which Utnapishtim sends out birds, including a raven, to help him determine if the waters of the flood have receded. When the raven does not return, he knows that the flood has abated, and he exits the craft to make sacrifice to the gods. If this sounds familiar, you have probably read or heard a little of the Bible. After the discovery of the ancient tablets telling this story, archaeologists assume that the biblical story of the flood was a later Hebrew version of the same story, That is certainly possible, but it is also possible that these stories share some sort of common ancestor story, especially if the story is a recollection, as some people think, of the great deluge that Neolithic people experienced when the Black Sea flood occurred sometime around the year 5,500 BC. After all, the Sumerians themselves say that they came out of the north, out of this region of the Black Sea. Anyway, on with the Epic of Gilgamesh, after hearing about Nepishtim's story Gilgamesh discusses his concern about mortality with Utnapishtim, who tells the hero that he can regain his youth by acquiring a special plant, presumably to eat. Gilgamesh does so, but the plant is stolen from him by a snake, and Gilgamesh returns to Uruk, sad and empty-handed. This portion of the tale also has some tantalizing similarities to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Utnapishtim lives in a garden in which there is a plant or tree that gives life. The plant is stolen by a serpent. The details are not equal to the biblical story of Eden, but some of the scenes and the characters are there, more lengths proving that this otherwise alien society, from the modern perspective, is indeed a fundamental element in our western traditions. The tablets following this portion of the story of Gilgamesh are not preserved in their entirety, and the story is not coherent after this except for portions. If you pick up a rendition of the epic today, you might find a tale that varies from that presented in another book, as editors and translators piece together the fragments differently. One more thing should be noted about the sumerians before we leave them and move on to the egyptians they are also somewhat responsible for the way in which we number things you may be under the impression as many are that we use a decimal system for counting and numbering things in the west this is mostly true but not entirely why is it you might ask that we use terms like one dozen rather than thinking in groups of ten we still use the term one gross, for example, referring to 144 of something when, re- when referring to certain quantities. Why do we think of 360 degrees in a circle? Wouldn't it make more sense to count in terms of 10, to stick with the decimal system and to divide circles into 100 degrees or into some multiple of 100? Why is the clock divided into 12 hours rather than 10, and hours into 60 minutes and minutes into 60 seconds? and feet are 12 inches, and there are 12 months in a year rather than 10, and so on. These habits and systems of counting are the fragments that remain to us from the ancient Sumerian and later Babylonian way of counting things in terms of quantities of 12 and 60. In fact, this was long known to us as an inheritance from the Babylonians, because we only had knowledge of the Babylonians when we were ignorant of their predecessors, the Sumerians. The Sumerians were the first, that we presently know of, who used the number 12 as their basis for counting, rather than 10. There are good reasons for the Sumerians doing so. There is even a modern-day society of thinkers dedicated to the idea that we should return to the system of counting because it is superior to the decimal system. For mathematical reasons that are outside the scope of this story, 12 is better than 10 for a number of purposes and reasons. As the metric system has gained popularity in the centuries following the french revolution we have only fragments of the duodecimal decimal system left the system that counts by 12s rather than tens but when we sing of 12 partridges in a pear tree or buy a dozen eggs or count the seconds in the last minute before we punch into work we should remember that these habits have been passed down to us from a time and a place far removed from now from the sumerians who watched the night skies over the euphrates river and counted 12 constellations and divided that sky into 360 degrees as it turned overhead. And what of the ziggurats? I promised to speak of them at the beginning of the episode and I almost forgot them. A ziggurat is sometimes referred to as a Sumerian or Mesopotamian pyramid. Also, they are sometimes called step pyramids. I should probably put to rest right away the idea that the ancient builders of pyramids, from Egypt to Southeast Asia to the Americas, copied one another somehow, with one of them or some other mystery civilization being the originator of the pyramid concept. But we do not need to determine if the Egyptians copied the Sumerians or vice versa. Neither solution is necessary, though one of them may be true. The fact is that a pyramid is the only large structure that you can build with technology available any time before the last few centuries. So the Sumerians did not need to copy the Egyptians or adapt their ideas, nor did the Egyptians need to get their ideas from the Sumerians. Once any culture reaches a certain size and capability, it is bound to build large structures for one reason or another. Poverty Point in the United States is one good example. It is simply inevitable, and if you can think of another shape that could be built with muscle and stone, you would be the first. No one ever tried to build giant cubes or spheres because they are not structurally possible. Only the pyramid is possible, and that is why everyone built them. The real question about the ziggurats of Sumer is the same question that we really have about the pyramids of Egypt. Why did they build them? It is strongly believed that the ziggurats of Sumer have a religious purpose. According to the Greek writer Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century BC, and about whom we will hear much more in the coming episodes, especially in series 2, which will tell about Greek history, according to Herodotus, every ziggurat was a shrine to a god, and ceremonies were carried out atop them. However, no evidence for this has been discovered in modern times. That may be due to Herodotus being mistaken, and he was probably mistaken about a lot, or this absence of evidence may be due to erosion, temporary structures atop the steppe pyramids would have been much less likely to survive the ages than the huge foundations of mud brick beneath them. Nevertheless, the religious significance of these structures is not really doubted by any modern researcher, only the exact nature of its religious significance is in question. The ziggurats were probably considered dwelling places for the gods. Only priests were likely to have been allowed on or near the ziggurats, How these priests interacted with the people as intermediaries for the gods, perhaps, is unclear. The king operated the government of the city, the soldiers protected the city, and the priests honored the patron god of the city to keep it safe from harm. Already, these classes of people had been formed some 5,000 years ago and remain in existence to our present day, rulers, soldiers, and priests. Sumer, like all other civilizations, rose and fell, as our own rose in the past and will fall one day. It was not a unified realm, but rather an assortment of cities along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that contained people sharing languages or dialects that we presume so far to have been similar. They shared a pantheon of gods, with each city having its favorite. They lived in similar ways raised the same crops, ate the same food, and drank the same beer made from those crops. But politically, they were as divided as the Greeks would be 20 and more centuries later. This diversity and division is not necessarily a characteristic of ancient cultures and civilizations. In the next episode, I will begin to look at the Egyptians, who sustained a mostly unified realm for thousands of years. But it was characteristic of the Sumerians, for reasons about which we can only speculate. While such independence can create strength, as it did for the Greeks, it can also create weaknesses that can be exploited, as it did for the Sumerians. Eventually, as the 3rd millennium BC passed, some city rulers expanded their domains and ruled over their own and other cities, creating the first small examples of empires, in which one ruler controlled a realm of multiple regions populated by distinct peoples. However, these these empires remained recognizably Sumerian. Then, Sometime around the year 2300 BC, the ruler of Akkad, a non-Sumerian city just outside the northern fringe of Sumer, far up the Tigris River Valley, came south and conquered Sumer city by city. His name was Sargon, and we remember him as Sargon the Great, the first real ruler of an actual empire in human history. He united Akkadian culture and language under his rule with Sumerian culture and language and his empire lasted about 150 years. Afterward, this region divided politically into two kingdoms, that of Assyria and that of Babylon. And with those names, we have now entered into territory familiar to anyone who has read the Bible, because these two kingdoms, as well as others, would plague the existence of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Something about Sargon that you should know before I end this episode. In an Assyrian text, from the 7th century BC, it is recorded that Sargon told the story of his birth, relating that he was the son of a priestess. His mother, this priestess, gave birth to him in secret, and then placed him in a basket and set it in a river, from which he was rescued by a royal servant and brought up among the royal household of Akkad, which would open the way for an aggressive and ambitious young man to seize power. The similarities to the story, not only of Moses but to that of Oedipus, and the Hindu legend of the demigod Karna, again reflect a widespread sharing of cultural and spiritual ideas in the ancient world that spreads all the way from Greece to India. As with the Epic of Gilgamesh, and this account from an otherwise strange Near Eastern society, we begin to see the first seeds of ideas that would come to play major roles in the development of our Western traditions. I am making progress on the website for the Western Traditions podcast, and I have hired someone to take over the technical aspects of it while I continue to write the content. In a month or less, I should have a fully functional website with maps, pictures, and source lists, as well as forums for discussions and questions and answers. If you like what you hear and would like to hear more, please do stop in at the website, western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org and make a donation through PayPal or through my Patreon account. In the meantime, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.